All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Hi, welcome. I am Jay Taylor. Uh, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times, and I'm your host. Uh, this uh, is the 21st day of January 2020. Uh, and as always, I'd like to remind you I'm the editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe to my letter by going to miningstocks.com. And certainly this is a good time to subscribe to my letter and other newsletter writers that are championing, uh, at least uh, that are researching and writing about uh, the junior exploration sector because now there's money coming into the sector. Drill holes are being put down and gold deposits and silver deposits are being found. And some of them uh, are looking very, 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 very attractive. And, of course, I write about that every weekend in my newsletter. Also, like to encourage you to consider signing up for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen also covers the mining sector, but he also, uh, probably a little bit up market from what I do, his, uh, his, his subscribers tend to be wealthier and uh, for the most part tend to be fund managers and the like, and they need more liquidity than a lot of the startup companies that I focus on uh, provide. But ChenPix.com, ChenPix.com is a place to go. In addition to the mining sector, Chen focuses a lot on the biotech sector where he's done extremely well uh, for, his, uh, for his clients. And uh, Michael Oliver, it's OliverMSA.com. We'll be talking to Michael in just a moment. Um, I want to thank each of you for listening and making this show one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also, I'd uh, like to uh, encourage you to send along any comments you might have about this show and anything that you hear on the show. Uh, we always like to hear from you. It's not possible necessarily to answer you directly, but um, it's always good to know what our listeners are thinking out there. Our sponsors for today's show, which I'm very thankful because without them there would be no show, Irving Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, Hannon Metals, Novo Resources, Great Bear Resources, Gatling Exploration, TriStar Gold Resources, and Lion One Metals. I've titled today's show, The Worm Begins to Turn for Unloved Sectors. David McElvenny, Michael Oliver, and Nick Appleyard return as guests today. Michael has turned decidedly bullish on commodities and bearish on the dollar, even as out-of-control rising interest rates appear visible uh, in the side-view mirror. At least to a certain extent, it seems that David McElvenny may be in sync with Michael's views of the market. David recently opined that the worm is beginning to turn for unloved sectors, we will ask David which markets he believes are at the turning point as uh, 2020 gets underway. What fundamentals does he see that convinces him of these changes, and how might strife in the Middle East and trade with China and all that come into play? What impact might the Fed money pumping 
uh, into the system by, by way of the repo markets play globally as foreign nations are pulling out of U.S. Treasury markets and U.S. deficits run further out of control. These are all questions that we'll want to pick David's brains on. Uh, Nick will provide an update on TriStar Gold Gold Company's Brazilian mining project in the second segment of today's show. But right now, I'm really happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you. You know, in, in December, you were stressing two markets that you thought were very important, namely the U.S. dollar index and the entire commodity sector as measured by the Bloomberg Commodity uh, index. Uh, if I'm reading your work correctly, you believe that the dollar now has begun a significant bear market, or most likely has begun a significant bear market, and commodities have most likely begun a, a bull market. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's an arm wrestling situation, though. <laughs> right now, the Bloomberg is backed up over the last uh, several days, and the dollar uh-huh. has rallied some. Uh, uh-huh. But the structures that we defined uh, were broken in December. And the rally that we've gotten in the dollar since then, which is modest at best, uh, does not negate that, nor does the pullback in the Bloomberg negate the upside breakout that it generated, because we're using pretty long-term metrics here. And um, so day-to-day action we, we ignore unless it does something you know, untoward, and it's not. Okay, so uh-huh. I think that, that those two categories have made a shift, subtle but firm type of shift, that will make itself felt, uh, you know, as we go forward. Um, right now, the, the one asset category, of course, that everybody's focused on, and I think it's the next player in the game in terms of uh, trend change, is the stock market, especially the U.S. stock market. Most of the uh, indices around the world, like uh, the Nikkei or the European indices, they're they firmed recently with the S&P, but nothing, on, uh, nothing comparable in terms of percentage rally. Uh, the U.S. market is in a mini, what we call a mini blow-off. I mean, in a point of acceleration where the uptrend says, oh, I want to go have a tantrum on the upside. Now, the problem with those type of events is that when they occur late in a bull trend, they usually indicate uh, exhaustion and extreme excitement, and therefore they're dangerous. That's not occurring in the Nikkei or in the DAX index in Germany or the Eurostoxx 50. They're, they're firm, but they're, they, frankly, they're where they were in 2015. Okay. So um, those markets are at best afloat. That's about all. Our market's the one that's uh, the U.S. market, the one that's gone parabolic. And it's our view that uh, with not much flinching, and we've got some metrics that we came out with in our, our all-asset category report this weekend, uh, a measurement of the relationship between the NASDAQ 100, which is the leadership index of the U.S. It's all front-end loaded with all the stocks you can name, yeah. four or five of them, mm-hmm. Apple, Microsoft, and so forth. Uh, comparing that to the perform- its performance versus the S&P, and when you measure that spread difference and the momentum of that spread, we've got some numbers not far below the market, in terms of that, that particular spread relationship, that would indicate, okay, we're beginning mm-hmm. the downside. And uh, so we're on top of that. And I think when that occurs, that's likely to shake out more money out of the stock market into other categories. And for a while, I still think that could go into the T-bonds, uh, German bonds, JGBs, uh, as a flight to safety type thing. Although I don't view that as a long-term persistent alternative, and into gold. Mm-hmm. So 
I would be watching, right now I'd be watching the um, S&P 500, the NASDAQ 100, especially the relationship. Mm-hmm. Because if that spread relationship shifts, disfavoring the NASDAQ, favoring the S&P, uh-huh. it means that the leadership is failing on a performance yeah. basis. And uh, we've got some structures below that look like when it, when it cracks, it could really start down hard. Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, yeah. everything's great in the world, and uh, just bye, 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 right? <laughs> oh, that's uh, everybody's all in because the Fed has your back, right? I mean, well, you, we just know with the Powell pivot now, it's pretty much guaranteed. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, there was a Bernanke pivot, too, back in uh, 2000, the summer of 2008, uh, summer of 2007, August. We had a big sell-off in the S&P. Bernanke came in with guns ablaze and said, oh, oh, I'm going to... Lower rates and uh, open the window for all kinds of stuff you can use at the Fed discount window, mm-hmm. like mortgage-backed yeah. securities. Mm-hmm. And we know that that stopped that market from going down, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, not quite. Uh, so, not quite. so I guess because the Nasdaq 100 has all those really, really huge uh, companies in there, uh, I guess when that thing starts to go, it could really go fast, right? Uh, I think so. Yes. Um, uh, our spread analysis of that particular relationship between NASDAQ and S&P has been quite good over the last year, uh, both in calling downside and calling upside. Right now it's uh, pending uh, a major downside breakpoint, and uh, we're watching it day by day, therefore. And I think when that snaps, uh, my strong suspicion is that gold, which is up here picking its teeth above the highs of last summer, uh, by the way, every, everybody who's nervous about gold shouldn't be. Take a look at the price chart. It, it surged above last year's highs, and it's gone to sleep here for the last four weeks above those highs. So it's comfy up here. You know, It didn't gain ground and then collapse. It gained ground and held it. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think it's waiting on the next little snap, and I think that's going to be from the stock market. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for me to see how, how that could happen. You know, going back, Michael, uh, you did a great service for your subscribers uh, after the peak in 2011. You got them out, not exactly at the top, but I don't know, it was 100 bucks or so from the top. It was a lot better than when I finally got out. Well, I never did, actually. I wrote it all the way down from 1,700 to just a, a little over 1,000, right? was the bottom. Uh, but back at that time, um, I'm just something came to mind just recently that, that happened was that the Fed started the twist. You know that where they where they sold the short end and bought the long end of the curve, and one person's theory was that that convinced the market that with the T-bond uh, rates collapsing, that there was no worry about inflation, so therefore they sold gold. Then um, do you suppose? I don't know if that's the reason. I'm sure, I'm sure always there's many different reasons why people do things and why they make decisions to buy or sell. But if that if if that in fact was a major factor. I'm wondering if that might not be something that gold investors should be on the lookout for sometime in the future. If we start to have rising interest rates and the long bond starts to rise, as I believe you think is, is very possible here in the future, especially if we start having some serious com- uh, commodity inflation, which I think you also think is a possibility, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, there's always tricks these guys can play to try to rip the rug out from underneath you, right? So I just want your thoughts. I know that you focus on the uh, you know, uh, from a technical perspective, and that you're not concerned about different reasons why things do what they do. That becomes apparent sometimes later. But um, I guess it's always possible. Nothing is a one-way street forever, even though right now everybody thinks that the, uh, not everybody, 
large percentage of people, probably smaller investors, think that you can't lose in the stock market. Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, the, right, the so. Fed does manipulate things, and when they do manipulate things over the last decades, uh, and now more recently, uh, the extreme manipulation, not just by the Fed, but the ECB and the BOJ, um, has boosted equity prices. In fact, the, yeah. the BOJ is an owner of stocks. I think they own like more than 10% of the ETFs over there. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, their intent was to buoy stocks. Bernanke stated it outright. Uh, one of the policy goals was to boost stocks to create sentiment. So the consumers would go out and spend their money, not save it, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a lunatic idea. But anyway, they did yeah. it, and it worked. Well, it worked because the S&P had collapsed from 1570 down to 6, uh, 670, Mm-hmm. Between uh, the 2007 high and the 2000 early nine 2009 low, and so yeah. naturally at that point uh, it made sense from a price point of view that yeah. okay we've got a bombed out market here, mm-hmm. so it could go up. Now so you know maybe the first half of the bull market in terms of price up to 2015 let's say was justified wasn't excessive, but then everything since then on the U.S. stock market has been. Uh, uh, you know, squeezed out of the tube, I think, to a point of excess. So I think the Fed has created another bubble situation, this time equity markets. Prior, it was real estate markets. Mm-hmm. This time, it's equity markets. Um, and I think when that comes undone, they will not be able to stop it. They've not mm-hmm. been able to stop their prior bubble bursting, 2000, the 2007 burst to real estate market. So when it comes undone, uh, despite the fact they continue a policy to try to save things, it doesn't work because no. the excess was too excessive. And no. when it comes unwound, there's a thing called Mother Nature. And I yeah, think we're at that right. point now, but I think the, the excess now, instead of like real estate or whatever, or dot-com, it's now the stock market, especially the no. U.S. stock market. No. And, For uh, sure. And, and, some would, and, and some people would say it's also the treasury market or the bond market. And I think your, your technicals, though, Michael, are, are bearish long-term for the T-bond. Am I right about that? I think that the, the T-bonds, uh, they're dangerous to be short because if you get yeah. a rapid, brief stock market slump as part of a broader slump, you know how the stock market can do it fast occasionally. When that happens, the flight to safety uh, into T-bonds and the bonds and the JGBs will occur. And if you're short those markets, you'll be skewered. However, yeah. I doubt that those rallies, when they occur, uh, will be sustainable, meaning that once we get one of those spike rallies again, flight to safety, I think that alternative, namely the government bond market, will cease to be attractive to investors, in which case you're left with pretty much uh, only one area, and that's the broad commodity category, which is totally bombed out. Mm-hmm. It's not going down anymore. The issue is up. And the gold market. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And those are fairly small arenas compared to the global stock market and the bond markets. So, you know, if all of a sudden yeah. everybody wants to grab hold of a position in those areas, yeah. commodity-related stocks, commodities, gold, etc., uh, it can be quite a wet bar of soap. So, Yeah, <laughs> or akin to uh, Niagara Falls through a garden hose or something like that. Right, right. Well, <laughs> all right, well, we'll have to leave it go with that, Michael. Thank you so much. Again, always a pleasure to have you on, and uh, in a couple of weeks from now, we hope to do it again. All right? Thank you, Jay. Bye-bye. All right, folks, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because Nick Appleyard, the president and CEO of TriStar Gold, will be with us. A very promising advanced-stage gold mining project in Brazil that looks very good to me. 
I hope you'll stick around and listen. Don't go away. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Gatling Exploration is aggressively expanding its 100% owned Larder Gold Project with three high-grade gold deposits located along the prolific Kirkland Larder Break in Ontario, Canada. 35,000 meters of drilling is underway and to date has now connected two of the three gold deposits and is aiming at connecting the third to create a 4.5 kilometer trend. Gatling trades under GTR on the TSX Venture and GATGF on the OTCQX. Visit www.gatlingexploration.com to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today Nick Appleyard. He's the president and CEO and a director of TriStar Gold. That's a company that I've recommended in my newsletter, own personally, uh, and the company is also a sponsor of the show, so I'm very happy to have Nick with me today. Nick has executive experience in mining, having previously been the CEO of Chaparral Gold and the Vice President of Corporate Development for International Minerals. He has over 25 years of international experience in precious metals and exploration mining, and he has managed exploration development and production uh, joint ventures in North America and South America, including extensive project development experience in South America with more than 10 years, and he's uh, currently operating with TriStar in Brazil. So now that, that company's flagship project is a Castelo de Sonhos project located in Pera State, Brazil. It's an advanced stage paleoplacer gold project mineable from surface. And based on a recently completed PEA, the economics look very strong. For example, the study projected a production of 1.1 million ounces of gold over eight years, but with an all-in sustaining cost of production of only 687 U.S. dollars per ounce and a gold price of $1,250, the project was projected to provide an IRR of 43% and an after-tax U.S. $264 million present value. By comparison, the company's recent market cap was uh, only around U.S. $45 million. So on that basis alone, I feel justified in saying that this stock is hugely undervalued but there is even more upside to the story than that. So that's what we want to talk to Nick about. I should tell you before we say hello to Nick that 
the uh, the TriStar trays in Canada under the symbol TSG, and you can buy it in the U.S. as I have under the symbol TSGZF. Uh, and it closed this past week at around well, only around 19 cents in U.S. money. Welcome, Nick, and thanks for joining me again today. All right, thanks for having me, Jay. Really good to have you, and I know we have to hurry because you're on your way to the project in Brazil that you're, uh, the TriStar is working on. You know, as I understand it, you have really focused on just one part of a much larger Costello de Sonhos project, namely the Esperanca South deposit. Uh, but the economics are very strong. Can you talk uh, t- uh, just a little bit about the nature of this project and why the economics look so strong? Yeah, I think, Jay, it's really to do with the fact that it's a very young project in its development cycle. Um, you know, it's a large project. as a plateau about nine kilometers across. But as you said, when we started to develop it, we just looked for the easiest, the highest margin stuff first. So mm-hmm. that drew us to Esperanza South where, you know, we have, six to eight kilometers of strike of outcrop of the um, mineralized conglomerates. And there was Garimpera workings in there from the 1990s. So you could sort of, you had a very high confidence level that it was gold there because mm-hmm. someone's already been taking it out. Um, in the end, because of it coming out of the ground, outcropping, it just made it a very easy target for us to go after a nice consolidated package, drill that out, prove that the project as a whole has real economics and real potential. So, so that's why we focused on East Brenza South, just to start with. Okay, so you, you mentioned six to eight kilometers. How much of that is factored into that PEA? Oh, I would have to say about, no, that's probably, there's probably about five kilometers in the PEA of strike. Okay. It's discontinuously drilled at that stage. There's a few little gaps that we're trying to fill in now. Oh, okay, and that's part of what you'll be doing this year uh, in yes. 2020? So to yes. uh, so to upgrade and to perhaps even increase the resource. No, we will be trying to optimize it a little bit. It, mm-hmm. it is predominantly in fill into the PEA. <clears throat> Obviously, as you do that, you try and chase nice bits of grade where you can and move away from lower grade areas. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of tweaking, but predominantly up, um, just upgrading from inferred into measured indicated categories. Now, your um, the goal of TriStar is to become a producer. Do I have that right? Yes, the, the goal is to remove Casella de Sonios in a production. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say um, myself and the board are ambivalent as to if we do it or or if, if the, or if a better opportunity comes along to partner with a big company who could put it into production, mm-hmm. you know, because that capital hurdle is always going to be a, an issue for a smaller company. Mm-hmm. But um, it's for me, it's a business decision. There's no sort of ego involved in whether we build it or someone, or we partner with it or we sell it to someone. It's whatever's best for the shareholders at that point. Right. So you're in the process now of de-risking this project. I know that you are. You're actually uh, going to be starting or have started actually a, 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 P, a preliminary. Well, not a preliminary. You're talking about a. Um, you're doing further economic studies. I guess you're you're moving more towards a feasibility or a pre-feasibility study at the present time, right? Yes, so right now we're doing the pre-feasibility study, and, and that's what I'm heading down to down to Brazil today to work on that. Um, mm-hmm. And that will be finished in Q4 this year. Q4 this year. So that's certainly one thing to keep our eyes on. And um, all right, so what you just put out a press release uh, talking about your achievements for 2019 and what you hope to achieve in 2020. Can you talk about both of those uh, both of those issues? Yeah, absolutely. So 2019 is, is, you know, seems to have, you know, been the 
come at the end of quite a few tough years in the junior cycle. <clears throat> but I think from TriStar's point of view, it ended up being a sensational year. We um, we did that transaction with Royal Gold. Mm-hmm. We sold them a 1.5% NSR royalty for US $8 million, which I think was a and we were all very happy with it and all our shareholders have seemed very happy with that transaction. It's non-dilutive, so they get, you know, we get the cash, we move the project forward nicely. Um, on the back of that, we then also, and I think this is a bit exciting we'll be talking about, we've also entered, uh, raised another $2 million Canadian at the end of the year, solely focused on upside potential. And, and in, in line with that, we signed a contract um, to work with a group called Goldspot Discoveries, who um, we can talk about in a minute, I guess. But that's that's the sort of exciting bit beyond the feasibility. Mm-hmm. All right. And then, uh, so so going through 2020, I guess you'll be doing, as you said, some more infill drilling and uh, work on your on your feasibility. Um, and, and then what? Yeah, so we'll be finishing our... Infield drilling, we're about halfway through the program. We hope to finish that end of March, early April. Resources, mid-year, and then the um, final part of the study complete in Q4. So that's sort of our one one channel of news, one channel of our work that's going on. The other part, which is I think the part that internally has got us really excited, is this work with Goldspot Discoveries. So, so what Goldspot Discoveries do is they're really trying to drag our industry kicking and streaming into the, you know, the... 21st century mm-hmm. by bringing machine learning, artificial intelligence mm-hmm. to use. And that's, you know, we want to make sure that people understand that it's not like a magic bullet which creates massive ore bodies. What it does is it takes all of this massive amounts of data that we generate on a project and has a computer looking at it in a way that a human just can't. Mm-hmm. So the end result of what that's going to do for us, so what we're going to see in 2020 is a massively accelerated and much more efficient exploration program. That, that's the sort of the two things that it, it does for us in a practical sense. So the, the exploration that may have taken us several years to do and quite a lot more money to do, we will start getting results out in the next three, four, five months. <clears throat> All right. So that's uh, another thing for investors to keep their eyes on. Um, is it, can you comment a little bit on the larger picture there, the Costello de Sanos project, and uh, I think, you know, as you said, you focused on Espranca South because that was where the, the most obvious uh, deposit lies, but with machine learning and all, I mean, might you learn use that as well to explore the bigger picture at Costello de Sanos? Oh, absolutely, and, and that's really the main focus of it. A little bit of it will help us at Esperanza South, but the real focus of working with Goldspot Discoveries is to look deeper into the plateau um, and look for the next um, quantum change in this deposit. You know, like I said, it's really young in its life cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at Tark, we look at Jacobina, these, which are the analogous deposits, they go for a long time and they find a lot more, you know, a lot more gold as, as the light mine develops. We're just trying to accelerate that process. So, yeah, with Goldspot Discoveries, we... We've got ideas, theories on, on deep targets, mm-hmm. um, long strike targets, uh, second sources of gold. So one thing is interesting, it doesn't have to be paleoplast or it can be remobilized or it could be the original source of the gold. That's one of the things oh. we've got our one eye on because uh-huh. we know that the plastic gold was deposited from somewhere yeah. um, with the 
you know, the greater amount of computing skill, we'll actually be able to get directions back to where to look for that original source of the gold. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that could come out of it. And, and what's really good is it's very efficient and it's going to come out, as I said, in the next three, four, five months. Yeah. What I think most uh, investors that aren't familiar with this sector don't realize is how much science goes into making a discovery and then, of course, production as well. But with this machine learning now, it... Um, I guess exponentially, it, it, it empowers geologists exponentially because it can put together all manner of data that uh, and, and factor it together in a way that humans can't really do, right? So it's, it's no, I, absolutely. These, especially these days, we seem to be collecting a lot more data, and once it just becomes overpowering. Yeah. Um, to a geologist, the geologist can look at a cross section, the drill hole, and gold grades, mm-hmm. but the, but in your mind, you can't integrate that with geophysics and geochemistry all at the same time in a three-dimensional format right. or even actually even in four dimensions because we're looking at the time when, when things were developed relative to each other so for sure yeah um, that's that's where the computer can just do what mm-hmm. what we just can't do ourselves yeah well I mean I in my way of thinking here with the a minuscule market cap obviously very strong economics I guess uh, it's hard to see why the shares are trading where they are, as low as they are. But I would ask you that one other question that comes to mind. What about the community relations and uh, Parastate Brazil, which I believe is a very pro-mining uh, province of, of Brazil. But could you just comment perhaps briefly on your relationship with uh, w- with local people? Because that's always an important aspect uh, for companies mining in another country. That's dead right. Well, it's critical wherever you are, I think. Um, I think mining projects, it's like real estate. It's like location, location, location. Uh, when Before I moved into this company, one of the things we looked at a lot was where this is situated. And being right next to a highway, right next to a power line, we've got the infrastructure. But then, as you said, the community side is critical. There is a local community about 20 kilometers from site, but they're all... Originally, they moved to the town in the 1990s for logging, farming, and mining. Mm-hmm. They're sort of primary industry people who, as a general issue, you know, generally would not object to a mining project near them. And as such, we don't have any issues right now. You know, it's, it's always going to be a challenge permitting a mine anywhere in the world these days. But right now, this one looks very, very simple, and it looks like um, there are no objections as we go forward right now. All right. Uh, just in wrapping up then, Nick, uh, perhaps just uh, remind our listeners what they should be watching for in 2020. Okay. I think the, the big thing is going to be the first half of the year is going to be this upside, what's coming out, what's there beyond their friends of south, you know, where this project's going to get to and hopefully some idea of total size we might achieve. So the expiration results are going to come out over the next three to six months. And then after that, the focus will move on to completing the pre-feasibility study in the second half of the year. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much, Nick. It is an exciting opportunity, I think. Uh, people aren't really uh, paying as much attention. That's why we wanted you to tell the story to our listeners, yeah. at least, so they can get a heads up and uh, and profit from uh, from the hard work that you're doing. Thank you so okay. much for being with us, and uh, safe travels and all the best as you travel down to your project in Brazil. Okay. All right, folks. Well, that is uh, all the time we have for this segment. Now, I'm going to be, uh, but don't go away, because David McElvaney will be with us right after the break, so don't go away. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX. 
is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie Project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete their very active 90,000-meter drill program through next year. Considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years, GBR aims to release a maiden resource in early 2020. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. TriStar Gold is a gold exploration and development company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TSG and on the OTCQB under the symbol TSGZF. The large and growing gold resource at Castelo de Sanos Project is located in mining-friendly Pata State, Brazil. A recent $8 million investment from major mining company Royal Gold will advance the CDS project towards a feasibility study in 2020. TriStar Gold enjoys strong institutional shareholder support from groups like Gold 2000, RBC, Sun Valley, and U.S. Global. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again David McIlvaney. Uh, David is the president and the he's the president of the McIlvaney Financial Companies. It's McIlvaney Wealth Management and ICA. That's a precious metals brokerage firm. And uh, David has become a, a frequent guest on this show, so I won't read his entire bio, but I do think that it would behoove you to learn more about him and the company's that he is uh, in charge of by visiting any uh, or all of the following websites for precious metals. That's the ICA uh, part of the enterprise. Go to McIlvaneyica.com. That's M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y. Uh, for wealth management, there's mwealthm.com. Uh, and David also uh, provides a, a weekly podcast, very interesting conversation that he has with his colleague. It's uh, very informative, very timely, uh, and uh, sort of keeping up with what's going on in the world. Always entertaining and very informative. It's McIlvaneyWeeklyCommentary.com. McIlvaneyWeeklyCommentary.com. David, thanks for joining me again. Jay, always a pleasure. You know, um, before we get started, I, I noticed that one of your firms, McIlvaney Wealth Management, is providing a conference call addressing the subject of how to survive an equities melt-up. And it's scheduled for this Thursday, January 23rd at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Is this open to the public? And if so, how can people tune into that? It is open to the public. It's um, going to be a great discussion with Doug Noland and myself. Um, Doug's a veteran on the short side and understands the credit markets like very few alive today do. And so the conversation will be on the macro environment and also some of the aspects that we see in the financial markets today that are worrisome. 
Um, what we've done in our offering with what we call Tactical Short, that's one of our managed products. We have more of a commodity-focused uh, offering as well. But the Tactical Short, uh, we've managed to outperform all of our competitors handily this last year. Now, outperforming and losing money are two difficult things to swallow at the same time. Um, but it, it requires a tremendous amount of risk mitigation. We've had the markets melting up. And so to be short in the market melt-up is never comfortable. Mm-hmm. But we've done an amazing job mitigating those risks. And that, that's what we'll get into on the call this Thursday. And you need to register ahead of time. You can register at mwealthm, that's McIlvaney Wealth Management, or mwealthm.com. Mm-hmm. Very good. All right. Well, so, so we're in a melt-up, no doubt about it. Stocks are expensive. Uh, maybe you could put that in some perspective for our listeners, just how overvalued and, and can you compare them with a couple of other times in our history where I think we're we're pretty close to some of the tops, aren't we? Yeah, it depends on your metric for valuation. If you're talking about price to sales, so looking at the sales of a company, um, if that that's at all-time highs. So the price of the S&P, NASDAQ, and Dow are, are now at levels that have never been seen before on that metric. Uh, in terms of price earnings, uh, I prefer a modified price earnings, which would be your cyclically adjusted price earnings, takes out some of the earnings volatility, puts us at 34 and a half. And we're the second most expensive market in uh, U.S. financial history, the first being the year 2000 and the tech bubble. Um, we're actually far more expensive now uh, than we were in 1929 at the market peak there. A lot of leverage in the system in 29. There's a lot more leverage in the system today. I think these are some of the things that have us um, sort of up at night and maybe even up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. We ended 2015 with $210 trillion in global debt. And over the last five years or four and change, uh, we've added $47 trillion to that. And for that extra $47 trillion in debt, um, we now have China, the number two economy in the world, at 29-year lows in terms of economic growth rates. And the U.S. Um, just kind of whimpering along at a, at a sub-2% growth rate. And so, you know, what does $47 trillion get you these days? Not what you would think in terms of economic activity and growth. Yeah. Well, because a lot of debt comes along with that, of course, and that's uh, the burden of a fiat currency instead of a, an asset-based currency. It's a little different. So uh, we had David Rosenberg on this show last week, and he mentioned that it, it's just, you know, that the stock market is becoming so detached from, uh, from the real economy. David's work suggested that uh, a correlation of only about 7% to the real market right now, and he says that's in the past, he could see between 30 and 70% correlation between what's going on, uh, ec- economic metrics and, uh, and the stock market. Uh, on the other hand, 95%, according to his work, uh, is related to the money creation by the Federal Reserve. So, ideally, the equity market should be related to, you would think, uh, earnings, earnings growth, uh, the real economy, um, and I guess to a certain extent, earnings per share have gone up, but as you've talked about in one of your podcasts recently, that's not really directly related so much to economic growth as it is to other factors. Um, what what are some of those factors? Maybe you could just talk a little bit. Why the equity market? Of course, there's tons of money going into the market uh, at a time when interest rates are extremely low, so stocks aren't getting any competition from, from interest rates. But what are some of the factors that have really caused... Uh, uh, earnings per share to hold up as well as they have. Yeah, and I think it's a careful distinction between earnings and earnings per share. Here we are coming to um, fourth quarter reporting, 
And uh, companies in the S&P 500 are projected to report a 2% decline in earnings for the fourth quarter mm-hmm. from the year earlier period. And if that's if that, in fact, is is the way it plays out, that'll be the fourth straight quarter of declining earnings. Now, everyone's enthusiastic about maybe earnings recovering and where they gain their hope from, I think, is in part that piece that you mentioned, the earnings per share piece. So if I take, you know, 600 billion to a trillion dollars a year and use that to buy back shares, I shrink the total number of shares outstanding. And when I'm figuring my earnings per share progress, I shrink those total shares, uh, you know, and, and, and the math improves mm-hmm. tremendously sure. for me. Um, earnings sh- is spread out over a, f- a fewer number of shares makes the EPS look much better. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's kind of the smoke and mirrors game that's being played. Earnings in, in total are, are in decline, but we can play with the EPS number and sort of pretty up the pig, so to say. Yeah. And I think you mentioned on one of your uh, one of your podcasts recently also that the number of equities, the number of stocks out there in the in the universe of uh, of the market, much smaller. I think it was almost, if I remember, something like half as many shares as there were a number of years ago. I, that is, number of companies that are trading in the in the market. So yeah, your just supply under- has decreased. Exactly, just under eight thousand companies listed, um, you know, a dozen, two dozen years ago, and now we're half of that, just under four thousand. And so you've got a shrinking number of companies to invest in, uh, a shrinking number of shares outstanding, and you know, the, the the interesting fact for me is always to watch the insiders in those companies who, taking advantage of the high price, are willing to spend company capital to continue to buy back more shares. But with their own shares, they're hitting the exits. So, you know, insider liquidations, executive liquidations, not an encouraging sign. Um, and I think history will, will be very unkind uh, to, to, to the rules that allowed for that to happen. Sort of a, 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 a tale of two separate interests, personal self-interest in the executive suite and kind of how they abuse the treasury, company treasury dollars um, to benefit themselves. Right, so the companies are left with a huge amount of debt in many cases because some of these companies are taking advantage of low interest rates to borrow money and then buy their stocks back. And I suppose that works out very well for some of those executives who have options uh, that they can uh, that they can uh, exercise and pull money out of the company. I suppose that's some of what's going on anyway. Yeah, in uh, fact, Reuters, there was a Reuters article a couple weeks back that covered that and basically said, look, corporate America has added about a trillion dollars in debt each year over the last decade. It's about $10 trillion more in debt. Their big question was, where did the money go? That's the way the article described it or asked it. And, and the answer was, um, majority was share buybacks and dividends, special dividends. And so they, they haven't grown their businesses. The franchise have not necessarily improved. The cash flow and sales have not necessarily improved, um, but in the balance sheet, obviously, has not improved either. Yeah. David, I imagine uh, the next question I have for you will be partly answered, perhaps, in, in how to survive an equities melt-up that you're going to talk about on Thursday but with, uh, with Doug Nolan. But, you know, we see the Powell pivot, and now people are saying, well, wait a minute, there's, there's no risk here. We can just buy stocks forever. There's no end to it. Well, we know there's always an end to things in this uh, in this you know four-dimensional time-space uh, continuum. But uh, what could possibly go wrong? I mean, I, I'm sure that uh, Doug 
and you will talk about some of those things, but if you maybe just give us a preview. Yeah, I think a part of the issue is that people become less and less aware of risk as time goes on. And so there's less and less preparation for anything that might go wrong. Um, take, for instance, what it costs today to insure, whether it's a JP Morgan or uh, a Goldman Sachs or you know even a Deutsche Bank. We're talking about um, credit default swaps uh, as an insurance product for that. And uh, the difference in, in price on those uh, versus treasuries is, is, is minuscule, half a percent. Uh, whereas if you go back, and, and these are basically at levels that we haven't seen since 2007 prior to the global financial crisis. Well, you get into a period of crisis and then all of a sudden people start buying insurance. So that this is getting insurance in the financial sector, uh, which is one place that we would kind of look for, for cracks to emerge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as cheap as it's been since uh, 2007. Ignorance is bliss. Everyone's loving this market. Um, there is no risk in the market today. At least that is what the wisdom in aggregate uh, on display in the marketplace would say. Is there really no risk, Jay? I mean, or, or it, it, to me, it's a little bit like this. The higher you climb the rungs of a ladder, implicitly there's more risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mainly because you step off the first rung and you, you might, worst case scenario, twist an ankle. But from 25 feet up, mm-hmm. if something happens, anything happens, even something minor, actually because of the elevated position you're at, uh, the consequences are far graver. And that, that to me feels like where the market is. It's treating, it's like we're on terra firma and haven't even stepped onto the first rung of the ladder while in fact we're, we're hanging like on the very top, standing on the top rung and claiming to have no risk in the equation. Right. Well, Steve, it's, uh, another analogy I've heard is uh, somebody's falling out of a 50 stories and they're you know down past the 20, 20th story or so and they said everything is all right so far. Don't, don't worry about it. So everything is fine. Everything seals, seems so good. And yet when you look at these metrics and you look at the earnings and you look at the economy, the disconnect between the real world uh, and the paper markets, which are stimulated by this phony, funny money that's going into the system. You know, David, both Michael Oliver and Alistair McLeod, who are two frequent guests on this show, have come up with uh, very similar views on the dollar and commodities and interest rates too, ultimately. But Michael from his technical analysis uh, viewpoint and Alistair from a more fundamental perspective, both believe that we have actually started a bear market in the dollar. I mean, they're not talking short term, but longer term and a bull market in commodities. Uh, And these factors are likely to cause, they believe, a rise in inflation. It will start to consumer inflation, essentially. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that? I know I want to ask you about the worm turning, which was your article on December 6th, about sectors that were unloved before starting to come into favor. Uh, But do you have any thoughts on, I mean, it seems like inflation is something that happened in the 70s. It's never going to happen again. Any thoughts? You know, when the consensus view is that something will never happen again, you're getting pretty close to it happening again. And and that's, I think, just a, a reality today, or I should say this week, um, Oxford University has gone back to the market to issue 100-year bonds. Uh, they did this back in 2017. And so, man, roughly two years later, they're doing the same thing. Um, unsecured paper, 100-year paper. And the interest rate is right around 2.5%. Now, I mean, Jay, tell me what part of 2.5% over 100 years 
um, covers your British pound exposure. It, it really is. We're not talking about the reliability of Oxford University. I think they're going to be here 500 years from now, let alone 100 years from now. But what does the pound sterling do in 100 years? Because you're talking about pound sterling denominated paper. So mm-hmm. there, there's there's a complete disregard for the possibility of inflation over any period of time, which is remarkable. Because if you said, well, gosh, I don't think it's going to be a problem 12 months from now or six months from now, that might be a reasonable observation. But you are fighting every tidbit of history to say, I don't think inflation is going to be a problem 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, a hundred years from now. And yet that's where consensus lands. Mm-hmm. So I think the big surprise will be on the inflationary side. And so a bear market and the dollar, um, I mean, look, here in the US, we're already on tap, if you're talking to the Congressional Budget Office, for one trillion dollars in new debt per year over the next decade. Now you throw mm-hmm. us into a recession and they're gonna be more than happy to add to that trillion, maybe a half or a trillion more. And so you can see our debt levels moving up uh, on a very quick basis. The discount to the dollar applied uh, really going into bear market territory is not going to be a challenge. And frankly, it doesn't matter what the outcome is. Republican or Democrat 2020, Mm -hmm. you've got major problems for the dollar because we're already committed to the tune of a trillion dollars a year budget deficit spending. So, yeah, I I tend to agree with them maybe on the fundamental basis Mm -hmm. uh, that, that the dollar has uh, a tough road, tough road ahead. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if those folks that are willing to lend uh, Oxford their money for 100 years at 2.5% uh, must be thinking it's a foregone conclusion that the world is going negative rates. I mean, I think you, you, you had mentioned in a recent podcast that it was fairly, I don't know how many trillions, 14 or 17 trillion or something like that, uh, the, of the world's debt that's in negative territory now. So, um, maybe well, I think what, this is one of the big transitions as we came through the end of 2019 and are now in the early stages of 2020 is that interest rates are moving higher globally. And you might say, well, off of a very low level, who really cares? But you had $17 trillion in paper, which was negatively yielding, then 13 and now 11 What does that tell oh, you? It tells okay. you that interest rates are marching up. And the market has yet to really acknowledge the fact that interest rates are moving up. Why are interest rates moving up? We're talking about German boons. We're talking about, I mean, across across the yeah. globe, we've already seen the lows put in. The only reason we would re- revisit those lows is sort of the desperate attempts of central banks to drive those interest rates to those levels. The market is, at this point, pricing in higher numbers, which I think, if anyone is paying attention, is significant. Yeah. Well, it's certainly, you just have to wonder how, what I would like to know, David, is how is the U.S. going to finance its deficit at these interest rates? And I'm wondering uh, if you have any concerns about the, uh, about the recent instability in the repo market in the U.S. Is that telling you, and are you, are you at all concerned about that? Well, I, I think that the challenge with the repo market is basically hedge funds have figured out how to finance themselves um, directly from the Fed, and and arguably you could say indirectly because there's one intermediary between uh, the the hedge fund community and um, and the Fed. But that's that's actually in discussions to be eliminated as well to give them direct access. Think of the the largest leveraged speculative community the world has ever known getting direct access to central bank money printing. W- what does that spell for you? Problematic at all? 
And mm-hmm. but this is what's this is what the challenge is in the repo market. It's not just funding, you know, boring plain vanilla money market funds. Uh, you're talking about five times leverage, ten times leverage, twenty times leverage mm-hmm. uh, funds, and they're getting access from the Fed. So, mm-hmm. I, yes, it's problematic, and. Um, uh, you know what it means is that we're baking into the cake a lot of instability, and mm-hmm. that's really where gold and a few other commodities, but gold in particular, shines very well. Is when you have periods of growth, financial instability, uh, financial instability, geopolitical instability, uh, political instability. We may get sort of the trifecta of instability coming into 2020. Um, because again, geopolitically, it's China, it's the Middle East, it's Europe, it's deglobalization. All of those trends, politically. Yeah, I mean, we've we've got our own levels of dysfunction here in the United States, uh, none of which are going to be resolved from a fiscal standpoint uh, with a change in mm-hmm. someone sitting in the Oval Office. No, the re- no. the real challenge I think is going to be financial markets. Valuations already tell you you're on the edge of a cliff, and no. yeah, I think your contrary indicators are already telling you that too. Bullish sentiments way high, difference between bulls and bears about as much as you'll ever see prior to a major market crash. I saw that the um, uh, the explanation here for the repo spike at the repo markets was that the large banks, the four large banks that had been lending to uh, to the repo market had really uh, or actually had before that had been buying a lot of a lot of the treasuries, a lot of the huge amounts of treasuries that were issued. And they got to be treasury rich and cash poor and they stopped lending to the repo market in the repo market, and then um, the Fed had to step in because there weren't enough. So I don't know. That's 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 my understanding. But I'm just wondering, do you see any real problem? I mean, the, Donald Trump is anything but a fiscal conservative, and we're we're running huge deficits, um, trillion a year or whatever it is. It's big. And we're, you know, who's going to want to buy these treasuries at these rates? That's that's the question. And then I have then I want to ask you about. Uh, something else that you're doing in your firm. But but you have any thoughts on that? Who's well, buying ironic- our treasuries these days? Yeah. Ironically, in a world that is as yield-starved as it is, uh-huh. um, there's a limitless number of buyers for treasuries at, at these interest rates. Um, look at look at this week with both the Italians and the Spanish, um, four times and then five times oversubscribed uh, for 10-year treasury paper. And, and we're talking about you know, treasury paper that yields far less than ours, how is that even possible? How is it possible that the inflation expectations and credit risk of the Italians and the Spanish is better than the U.S.? Something is very wrong in the world of fixed income when uh, fiscal prudence um, shines brightly, uh, a halo around, around the Spanish and the Italians. Uh, and, and I'm not trying to be jingoistic. This is this is just a reality. You, yeah. you, they've they've never they've never known how to run a, their fiscal ship rightly, and we don't either. You're right. The U.S. is just moving more in their direction, but you don't have accurate market pricing and fixed income. And that's one of the reasons why I think you saw gold move last year, in spite of the stock market moving up. You have a greater yeah. audience of investors saying this does not add up. There's risks implicit that are not accounted for in the price of stocks and bonds. We better do the smart thing and create something of a hedge for ourselves. So I think gold demand 2019 was a significant tell in terms of the chaos that's expected and likely to be a 2020 reality. Yeah. 
I, I believe uh, my engineer is telling me we're just, well, we got to, no, he says we have two minutes yet. So let me ask you this, David. Uh, at ICA, uh, you do a lot of very interesting things uh, with relative values, uh, gold, silver, platinum, palladium, that sort of thing. Could you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, so one of the things that has been on the minds of lots of investors lately is, gosh, palladium's going through the roof. Should we own some? Will it continue? And our advice is pay attention to the ratio between the metals. And these are the kinds of things that we put in motion for our clients inside of IRAs and you know storage accounts and whatnot. So platinum and palladium trade, as you know, um, and they're used similarly uh, for industrial purposes, but the ratio between them is is radically different. We would be moving from palladium into platinum at these numbers. It just did this for some folks and they're increasing their ounces 11 times. Uh, <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's a pretty phenomenal thing. When your paper gains in, in dollar terms are up 5.5x, uh, but your ounce gains are 11x, and that's wow. in 12 years. It's taken us 12 years. These these trades don't happen every Tuesday, yeah. um, but over a decade or more, here we are with an 11 times gain. Uh, just did this trade for a client yesterday, and so playing the ratios is important. If you're interested, we can get you uh, a copy of how to double your ounces. Okay. And uh, how to double your ounces, if you request that from our, our website uh, or call our 800 number, 800-525-9556, that's a description of how we do what we do and an introduction to the team that's been doing that for 50 years very All effectively. Right. Excellent. Very good. Well, we'll have to leave a go at that, David, because we are out of time. I want to thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we'll look to do it again sometime in the near future if possible. All right? Thank you. Great to be with all right. You. All right, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, Dr. Quentin Henning and Dr. Mark Faber will be with us. They're scheduled guests. And so until next Tuesday, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling underway and its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu Gold Project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world not owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com. 